Let's jump into our passage today. We'll be in John chapter 14, probably one of my favorite chapters in all of the Gospel of John. Um, I will tell you this is a go-to chapter for Christians, uh, particularly Christians that live in an imperfect world, which is all of you. <laughs> now, this is part two of Jesus' farewell address, all the, the, the sort of from chapter 13, all of chapter 13, all the, the messages I gave there, I really considered part one because I think chapter 13 really is more of a preamble to all his teaching because Judas is still in their midst, uh, and Judas is obviously a traitor. Um, and so he's, uh, Jesus is not really um, looking to, to give all his meaty teaching when Judas is in their midst. But now that he's departed, he's going to launch into his full teaching um, on, on life after his departure. It's really, uh, that's the focus of the next three chapters. How do you continue on without Jesus? Right? So that's applicable today. How do you continue on without Jesus being physically present here on earth? Um, so with Judas on his, his way to betray Jesus, the cross is very, very near. So Jesus is beginning to look forward to his, his glorification, which he said would come through his death, uh, resurrection, and ascension. However, his glorification would require something that would be his departure. Jesus is going to, to, to leave. And that's why uh, back in verse 33... Of chapter 13, he told his disciples, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. And I'm sure that would have been shocking news to hear that uh, Jesus is going to leave. It was shocking. It was shocking to Peter because look how he responds. Um, in verse uh, 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And then Jesus drops another shocking statement with his reply in verse 38, and this is where we ended last week. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So think about um, this and, and also the other um, gospels when you read them. I mean, it's even more severe if you kind of put together everything he said. He said all of them would be made to, to stumble because of him. They would all scatter. <clears throat> they would all leave him. <clears throat> so if you think about the uh, cumulative weight of these announcements since the upper room, right, being in the upper room, um, I'm going to leave you. You cannot follow me. Oh, and there's a traitor in your midst. Oh, and Peter, you're going to disown me, and then everyone's going to leave and scatter, right? Not much of a pep talk. And no, it's not. What are those? Those are the facts. Jesus is giving them the facts. These are what's going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. You can't stop them from happening. We live in a sin-cursed world. It's broken. Uh, the perfect world God created is long gone. So hardships, trouble, toil, that, that's our world. And we live in this world that's ravished by death and disease. Uh, and the scriptures don't pretend otherwise, right? The scriptures don't, don't pretend that we live in this wonderful utopian society. We're promised... Uh, nothing like that, this side of heaven. Instead, the scriptures face the reality of hardships, that this life is hard. You look at the life of, of Job and all that he went through. And even early on, he said, man, man who's born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. That's in Job 14, 1, right? Your days are few and a whole lot of trouble come with them. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 18, he says, why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow, Right? Why was I born for this? And then Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus himself says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus says, yes, there's going to be trouble. So no point in worrying about it. All right? You can wake up tomorrow knowing, all right, bring on the trouble. Because it will come every day, especially if you have toddlers. Jesus is going to reiterate that truth there later in chapter 16, um, but we'll get to that. But here, while pain and hardship and toil and trouble and death and disease and all those things are promised to us, Scripture offers us a counter-promise, and that is comfort. And I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Obviously, keep your finger in John 14. We'll come back. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 just as a way of introducing this theme of comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Here's what Paul says. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all what? Comfort, you bet. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The comfort God promises to you is a comfort you can pass on to those others who don't know God and don't know his comfort. It's an amazing thing. But when Christians are overcome by the pain and the, the trouble of this world, can you provide comfort to those? You can't because you're absorbed in your own circumstances. Instead, you're supposed to overcome those and look at the comfort that's offered you and in turn offer that same comfort to others. And that is the goal here, right? Jesus is trying to train his disciples. What are you going to do? How are you going to continue the mission when I'm gone, right? You're going to need to be humble servant leaders. I'm going to wash your feet. You're going to need to love one another, forgive each other, right? Above all things. But also you're going to need to know it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, but be comforted by me and offer that same comfort to others. So basically what is spoken of here by Paul is really elaborated by Jesus here in John chapter uh, 14. Jesus is the one going to the cross, right? He's the one that's facing death, and yet what does he focus on? He focuses on comforting his own disciples so that they can understand how to get on with life in his absence. And Jesus seeks to comfort you today as well. This is a go-to chapter for you if you're experiencing difficulties and trials, which that would be all of us. This is a detailed look at where comfort comes from. It's chapter 14, the whole of it. But we'll look at just the first 14 verses today. Let's read through them. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are honored to enter into your presence and to open your very words. Lord, we pray that your words would touch our hearts, that it would dig deep into our very souls and reveal, Lord, to us how we might better live lives that glorify you. Lord, would you just show us your word today, reveal it to us, the truth within, by your spirit, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I've got five or six things I think I want to show you today of where comfort comes from. And the first comfort comes from trusting in Jesus' presence. And I think that's what he's getting at here in verse 1. Trust in his presence. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Troubled is the word we've seen a few times in John, haven't we? Jesus was troubled. It's the same word that's used of the pool of Bethesda. When it's stirred up, it means to be stirred up, to be agitated. Um, Their their hearts are, are troubled by all those recent revelations, right? I'm going to leave you. There's a traitor. You're going to disown me. You're going to be scattered. I would be troubled too. They're troubled. And he knows their hearts. He understands their confusion, yet he is compassionate and he can sympathize with them. He sympathizes with us today, does he not? Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He can sympathize with you. He understands, and he understands them. But notice now, because that's true, Jesus issues them a command. This is a command. Don't be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let that heart of yours get overcome by the troubles and worries and cares of this world. Don't let it be. It is right now to their, his disciples. That's great. Thank you, Jesus. Another command that seems impossible to keep. Don't be troubled. No problem. Let me just check that one off. Well, Jesus follows that up with another command, which is the key. It's the key. How do you have a heart that's not troubled? How do you do that? He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, the word believe here is pistuo, and it, is, it has two ways that you can read it. And that's why a lot of Bibles, even in this room, will have different readings of this verse. It can be indicative, like a, a fact. You believe in God, all right? Or it can be imperative, like a command. Believe in God. Those are the ways. So you have lots of different ways this verse is rendered uh, because of how it's, it's phrased uh, here. And if you look at the different ways you can do it, um, it can be confusing, and, and, and it's hard to figure out which one is it. I mean, if you make them both indicative, it's both statements of fact. You believe in God, you also believe in me. Or you can make the first indicative and the second uh, a command, an imperative. You believe in God, believe also in me. Or you can flip that, right? Believe in God, you believe also in me. <laughs> or they can both be commands. Believe in God, believe also in me. You get it? There's all the different ways. But some of those... Um, ways won't really work just by the context, the meaning of what's taking place here. And the word believe, pastuo, it means an ongoing trust, to have ongoing trust. Jesus is not calling for them to believe in God as if they need saving faith. They don't, they don't need that. He's already called them clean. Remember that? Back in chapter 13, verse 10, meaning they're spiritually clean, so they're not lacking that. What are they lacking? Well, you look at the context and you can see that they're lacking uh, the, the trust because their hearts are troubled, right? That's the condition. They're troubled. They're anxious. They're, they're worried. And when you're troubled and you're anxious and you're worried, you're not really trusting. That's just, that's just simply how that works. So it gives us two possible renderings of this passage. One is the New King James Version I have right here. You believe in God, which is the indicative. And then the command, believe also in me. Or the double command, believe in God, believe also in me. Both are great. Both will work. I think the second is um, the one that's the proper one here. Both commands, double commands. Believe in God, believe also in me. Because you consider the lack of trust um, that they're have, having. You, you think of it this way, trust in God, trust also in me because they're not trusting. Their hearts are troubled. Does that make sense? He's commanding them to do this. They didn't need to believe in God. Most of the Jews believed in a God that they had never seen, right? I mean, you'd have to go way back to, and even Moses didn't really see God, his face. None of them had seen God, but they believed in him. They trusted in him. So Jesus is trying to get them to trust in him in the same way they trust in God the Father. In Psalm 23, 4, very famous psalm, right, 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Can I ask you, was God visibly present with David when he wrote those words? No, but he experienced his presence, didn't he? He knew the presence of God was with him, and he knew because of that truth, he could be comforted. He did not need to be visibly present. He understood the presence of God despite being able to see him, and that's what Jesus is getting at. I am leaving you, but I will be present with you. Believe in God, trust in God, believe in me, trust in me. They need to have that same kind of faith uh, in Jesus, even though they can't visibly see him. And Jesus will elaborate on how this will take place a little bit later, but ultimately it will be through the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to make us aware of the comforting presence of Christ. That's, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that we would become more like him, right? That's the primary ministry of the Spirit. His presence is meant to, to be enough to comfort our hearts no matter what the difficulty is that we are facing. And as we'll, you'll see, we'll get more into 
the Holy Spirit in a bit here. But the Puritan uh, John Owen wrote this about that. He said this, a sense of God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears. And not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid consolation and joy. Just to know the presence of God is enough to get rid of every fear, every anxiety, and not only that, add to it joy, (laughs) right? So when the world is looking at a Christian in the midst of difficulty, and you have that kind of reaction, then can you offer them a comfort they would be willing to accept? You bet you can. But if you react in the same way as the world, what you don't have anything more than they do, right? So he's, he's saying, remember my presence. My presence will comfort you, and that comforts us today as well. He's not visibly present with us, but he is inwardly. And the Holy Spirit, if he indwells in you, makes you aware of his presence. You must know that. But not just his presence, his preparation. He's preparing something for you. Did you know that? He didn't just go away to go have a party, right? I did my work. Now I'm going to go have fun in heaven. Enjoy the trouble on earth, guys. He's preparing something for you. These, these are amazing verses. Look at verses 2 to 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house. What is my Father's house? That's an interesting word, isn't it? My Father's house. Well, Scripture describes heaven as many things, right? Describes it as a country, uh, a kingdom, even paradise. Do you know that it describes it as a city as well? Um, In Hebrews 12, 22, We're told this, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, the the city of the living God, his house, (laughs) heaven. And the mansions are literally dwellings is what it means. And the picture is this, is of of a father building additional rooms onto his uh, house that would invite his his sons and now their extended families, right, their wives and their children, to live uh, with him. That's that's the picture because that's what was done in Jewish days, right? They would just expand onto their houses, ever-expanding rooms, dwelling places that the rest of the family might dwell with the father. Here's the point. Jesus is doing that very thing. He's building you dwelling places that you might be able to dwell with the heavenly father. He's preparing those places for you. You're part of the family of God now, right? You you get to be in those dwelling places with him. And I want to just lift up our minds and comfort us today with the reading of Revelation chapter 21, because it describes the heavenly city and just reading it should offer us great comfort. So turn there really quick, Revelation 21. It's a large section of scripture and I'm going to read it all. Because it's incredible when you read about this. We're going to start in verse 9 of Revelation 21. This is the heavenly city, your eternal destination. Revelation 21, go to the very end of your Bible, beginning in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. That's about 1,380 miles, half the size of the United States of America. A city. Amazing. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You read that every day, (laughs) that that's your eternal destination, that Jesus is preparing that home for you. Be comforted. Right? You look around the walls of your house and say, oh, I hate this dump. But then you look at that and go, but that's where I'm going. (laughs) Jesus is preparing that place for you. But also, this gets better. He's going to come here and personally take you there. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. What is this in reference to? This is not in reference to his second coming. This is in reference to the rapture of the church. I know we've done this several times, but we'll look at it again really quickly if you want to follow along. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4 is one of the passages that speaks about the rapture of the church. Uh, just read this one uh, br- briefly here and highlight a few things as to how we know this speaks of of a rapture of the church. When I say rapture, it means caught up. It's a secret coming of Christ. It's not one that is globally seen. It's only seen by his church, his people, where Jesus will personally come and take us to be with him forever. But look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, uh, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And what do we do with these words? Comfort one another with these words. It's meant to be comforting to say, no, God, Jesus himself is going to come and take us to be with him. And we have touched on this topic several times in John's gospel. So I don't want to exhaust this, but just as a brief review, here are some reasons that we know in this passage that this indicates something different than the second coming. Here in in this passage, there's no reference to judgment, is there? Don't be troubled. I'm going to build something for you. I'm preparing something. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. No judgment there. But in all of the um, accounts of his second coming, they are in reference to judgment. When Jesus comes a second time, he's coming to judge. Here, In this passage, Jesus himself will come again and receive us. But at the second coming, the angels are sent to gather uh, the elect. So here, Jesus himself will come. Even in 1 Thessalonians, he will descend himself, right? With the voice of an archangel. Here, Jesus promises to return for them, for us, right? But in the second coming, he returns with us. We read that not too long ago as well, Revelation 19. We're we're with Jesus at the second coming, which means he has to have um, taken us before that. So between the rapture of the church and the second coming, believers will come and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb as members of the household of God and will receive rewards. And then when Jesus returns in judgment, the saints will accompany him. But here's the point. The physical separation of Christ from his disciples is only temporary, but it's for a good cause. He's preparing to receive us. He'll return for us and will reign with us. That should comfort us. Those are comforting things. Go back to our passage here in John chapter 14. Look at verses 4 to 6. Not only is his presence something that we should be mindful of to comfort us, but also what he's preparing for us. But look at the proclamation that he makes here. Verse 4, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We know that verse well. That's a well-known passage. Um, But this is very confusing to the disciples. Um, Jesus had made it clear earlier that where he was going, his his disciples would not be able to follow. That was back in verse um, 33. I already read that earlier. So I'm going somewhere and you won't be able to follow me. And they didn't know where he was going. So how can he now be telling them that they know the way? (laughs) Right? That's confusing. I would be confused. Uh, So Thomas finally speaks up. He's the brave one to say, yeah, I'm confused. (laughs) Right? Um, And interestingly, Thomas is only ever recording as uh, as speaking here in John's gospel. So of all the disciples, he seems to be the slowest to catching up on what Jesus is saying. Uh, if you remember back in, um, uh, when Jesus was in Perea um, and uh, he got the message about Lazarus that he was, he was dying, do you remember why he was in Perea? B- because the Jews had almost stoned him to death, right? And so he was sort of staying out of, out of danger and then he receives news that Lazarus is going to die and so he needs to return to Bethany just two miles outside of Jerusalem. So that's putting his life in danger uh, again. And so Thomas is the one who says, okay, well, let's just go with him that we may die with him, right? Oh, he's going to go back there, is he? We're all going to die, is what he's saying. So he's the pessimist, Thomas. And here his pessimism is expressed uh, again. He's been showing them the way Jesus has the whole time, three and a half years of his ministry. He's showing them the way. And this is the, the, the sixth of, of John's I am statements. These are, these are famous statements, aren't they? Uh, Jesus has said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door of the sheep, I'm the great shepherd, and I'm the resurrection of the life. And now he says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. What does he mean by all of these uh, things? He is, he is the way. Well, he means he is the way to God. Our, our world teaches that there are many ways to God, right? All, all the, the paths of the mountain lead to the same mountaintop is kind of the idea. Uh, it depends what path you're on. <laughs> if you're on paths here in Wales, I've noticed, uh, you, there's no telling where they will lead. I've heard about Mark's famous shortcut, yeah, out of the waterfall. And he tried to convince me to take it. I said, no, I've heard about where these paths lead. They don't lead back to the car. Five miles in the wrong direction is where they lead. <laughs> but he's the way to God is what Jesus is saying. He's the only way to God. And John has made this the point from the very beginning, hasn't he? You go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So you see him, you see the glory of the Father. He's full of grace and truth because he's the truth about who God is. And because he's the truth about God, he alone possesses the life of God. And that's from John chapter 1 as well in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The purpose of John's gospel is to make these things known. That's what he is trying to do. And that's why these themes are repeated throughout, aren't they? The Bible does teach that Jesus is the only way to heaven, to God. It does teach that. I don't want to have any confusion. That is what it teaches. John the Baptist declared this about Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. These are very clear scriptures. You, you must believe in the Son or what? God's wrath still abides on you. Peter declares this later in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter obviously eventually gets the point, doesn't he? You can't be saved by any other name. Paul declares this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see men today trying to lay their own foundations? On, on anything, any way uh, to, to reach it on their own. But the foundation is laid on Jesus Christ and him only. No other foundation is given to us to lay. Jesus. In his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. These, these verses don't get any clearer. 
Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. Biblical uh, commentator Andreas Kostenberger says this, and I think it's so perfect. Jesus' claim to be the way, implying that no one can come to the Father but through him, is as timely today as it was when our Lord first uttered it. For we live in an age of religious pluralism, when Christianity's exclusive claims are considered inappropriately narrow, even intolerant, and when pluralism itself has, ironically, become the dogma by which all truth claims are judged. It has been said that pluralism accepts no absolute truth claims other than its contention that there are no absolute truth claims. (laughs) That's our world today. They're absolutely, positively certain that there is no absolute truth. I always say, are you certain about that? Are you positive? Jesus said, I am the way. And it was due to his claim to be the way that Christianity was not first known as Christianity. It was first known as the way, right? You read, you read Acts, uh, Paul, before he's converted, is, is going to get letters from the synagogue so he can go arrest people who are of the way, and take them bound to Jerusalem. And you see that mentioned several times through the book of Acts. He was called the way because Jesus said it was, he was the way. Now, Thomas here raises his hand, right? And brings up, the Lord, we don't know where you are going. So we don't know the destination. So how can we know the way? What does Thomas want? He wants a, a literal roadmap complete with specific directions, doesn't he? Give me the whole thing. But he didn't need those because he already knew the way. He knew Jesus. Men, let me offer you a word of encouragement. If you are being chided for not stopping the car and asking for directions, you don't need to. You already know the way. All right? You just use that. All right? Jesus is my Savior. I know the way. You'll still get lost, but hey. But Jesus said, the way you know. The way you know. He says that. That's his answer. The way you you know. Knowing Jesus, the only way to God is a great source of comfort for us. If you know Jesus today and you know he is the only way to God, you absolutely believe that, that's a comforting thing. And Jesus offers that comfort to all of us. You don't have to stumble around in the dark. You don't have to uh, guess about your eternal destiny. You know where you are going and because you know that, you, you, because you know the way. So be comforted in that. Look at verses 7 through 11 here. He gets a little bit deeper here. Look at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus is no longer talking only to Thomas here. Because this statement, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, is a rebuke. He's rebuking the disciples here. If, If you would have known me, right? If you had known me, you would have known my father also. What they fail to understand here about Jesus is his person and his mission. Understanding the person of Jesus is meant to be a great comfort for us. And when people get the person of Jesus wrong, they often struggle with everything else. They often are lost. Um, What is Jesus rebuking here? Well, he's rebuking them in a very similar way. It's almost exactly to the way in which he rebuked the Pharisees back in chapter 8. You might remember this. I'll just bring it up to you. The Pharisees are attacking Jesus because he's only one witness, right? They're saying, well, it's just your word against ours. You're, you're only one witness, right? You say you are this thing. You are from God and you are la da 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 but that's just your word. You're one witness. And Jesus defends himself first by saying, well, that's okay because I know where I've come from and where I'm going. But let's just set that aside. Let's go on, you know, with your mindset. What does the law say? You need two witnesses, Right? He says, so I'm going to give you two witnesses, me and my father. You remember that? And so then the the Pharisees said, okay, we'll play that game. We'll take your word. Let's interview the father. Show us the father. And what does Jesus say? You know neither me nor my father, right? If you had known me, you would have known my father also. He just says the same thing to the Pharisees that he says to the disciples here. That was his defense. So what's the difference then? What is the difference with the Pharisees and the disciples here? Well, the Pharisees and really all Jews, did not understand uh, Jesus' familiar way of talking about God as his father. And that was just a foreign thing, the way Jesus talked. Like, he was so familiar with God. Like, that didn't make sense to them. And that was one of the reasons they rejected him as Messiah. 
Now, the disciples were the same way. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand why Jesus talked about God as his father in such a familiar way, but they received him as the Messiah. That's a big difference. But there's another difference, and Jesus gives it to us uh, here in the second part of verse 7. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, this is a promise to the disciples uh, specifically. From now on cannot mean as of that moment right there in the upper room. Like from now on, um, you, you've seen him and you know him because of what Philip says in verse, verse 8, because he still doesn't understand. And of what you read about the disciples in Acts. I mean, even after Jesus has risen and appeared to them, they still don't get it because they're telling him, at this time, are you going to you know, set up your kingdom? Is it happening now? They still don't uh, get the whole thing. So what does from now on uh, mean? What, when does that begin? I'll tell you when it begins. It begins at Pentecost with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, John's alluded to this a couple of a times, but with the departure of Judas, right, the events that are leading Jesus to the cross cannot be stopped. That's happening. And Jesus has already begun to speak of things beyond the cross as if they're happening now. Remember that from even from last week. Look at uh, what Jesus talked about in verse 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now he is. Jesus was talking about the cross, resurrection, ascension, but he was speaking about it happening right now. And the same thing is happening uh, here. From now on, you know him and have seen him. What he's saying is when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them, then they will understand. They will know. They will know that they've seen the Father in Jesus, but it's going to come to them later. Right now, they still don't get it. And that's what, why you see Philip say what he does in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us, right? It's, that's just the weirdest thing. Show us the Father. It's almost like, okay, finally, I'll put him out of my pocket, right? Here he is. I've had him this whole time. Here's the Father. What, what is he hoping to do? Maybe he's hoping there will be some sort of manifestation of, of uh, God in like the Old Testament way. I don't, I'm not really sure what he's hoping to see here, but he says, show us the Father, and that'll be good, right? You show us the Father, then we'll all understand. But they don't understand. And so Jesus responds with the next two verses with a little bit of sadness, I think. Look what he says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now, this kind of goes back to that trusting thing, doesn't it? But they don't have that right now. Their hearts are, are troubled. They don't, they don't get it. And, and to be fair, Jesus is compassionate about it to them here. So he gives them two pieces of evidence. And they're the same pieces of evidence that he's offered to the Jews when he challenged them. And the first is his words. Look at verse 10 again. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. First, he kind of testifies about the words. Listen to the words that I've spoken. He's reminding him, what have, what have I said all these years? What have I been teaching, Philip? Now, John the Baptist testified of Christ in chapter 3, verse 34. He said, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. John the Baptist said that. He those are the words of God coming out of his mouth. And Jesus already declared in chapter 7, verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. Right? Who sent him? Well, the Father. He adds more recently in chapter 12, verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say, what I should speak. So he's reminding him of the words these are the words that I've been speaking this whole time. Do you remember when Peter is challenged by Jesus? All the disciples are leaving, and, and Jesus turns to them and says, okay, do you all want to leave too? And, and he says, well, where are we going to go? What does he say about him? You have the what? The words of life, right? The words of eternal life. The words that you speak, I know, are words of eternal life. That's, that's encouragement. We, we need comfort today by reflecting on his words, on his words. You, you have to be in his word to reflect on his words, don't you? You have to be in it. You have to every day renew your mind with his words. This, these guys are with Jesus. He's, he's saying amazing stuff every single day. And here he is with Philip. He says, 
It's like you don't even know me. I meet so many Christians, right? It's like they don't even know him. They're never in his word. They don't have any comfort. They don't have any joy. They don't have any, any fruit. And it's like, you, it's like you don't even know who Jesus is. Are you ever in the word? You will never have those things by osmosis. You will never have those things by entering these doors. There's not some kind of electronic charge that puts those things into your body. The minute you walked in, I'm ready. Oh, I, I feel it. It's all here. A lot of people are looking for that in churches today, right? It was the experience. I had such a great experience. Let me ask you, where does that experience go when they walk out the door? It's gone like that. You need the words of eternal life. And Jesus tells that to Philip. Remember the things that I've said. I need to do that daily. I need to remember his words every day to open up his words to go, oh, that's right, those are truths. Because you can just go a few hours and have a whole lot of untruth in your head, can't you? You, you don't have to read much news or watch much TV to have all this worldly junk in your head that you have to almost like knock it out and remind yourself, that's false. <laughs> this is truth. We have to remember his words. His words encourage us, but not just his words. words. He, he reminds them about his works. That's the second piece of evidence he gives them in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves, right? In John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus, uh, um, Jesus said, I have a greater witness than John's, meaning John the Baptist, for the works which, which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Why does Jesus say that? You guys might remember, but Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived. Yet the greatest man who ever lived never did one miracle, not one sign, right? There's no shrine to John the Baptist. Well, maybe there is. Maybe there's a shrine to John the Baptist. You found one to Judas for crying out loud, so I don't know. But uh, maybe there is. But he's never done a miracle. He's never done a sign. And Jesus says, as great as that man was, I'm a greater witness because of the works that I've done, because of the miracles, In John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Recognizing the person of Jesus as God incarnate offers great comfort to believers, knowing that, yes, he did those miracles because he's God. You cannot believe that Jesus was simply a good man or a really, really good teacher or an angel or any other created being And understand what Jesus means by, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You can't uh, can't get it. It can't be understood. It follows that you won't have any understanding of the Trinity. It follows that you will have uh, no understanding of the, the Holy Spirit operating in you because you don't understand the Trinity. It follows then that, that these things would just be confusing to you and you'll be at the mercy of the world. When you separate Jesus out from his place as the second person of the triune God, you inevitably must rely upon the works yourself and not on his. But Jesus calls us to remember the very works that I've done. He says this to Philip, remember my words and remember my works. It's the person of Christ. So many people bring him down to just another man, but not the second person of the Trinity, not part of the Godhead that created all things. Let me wrap this up. One more thing, or two more things, his power. His power brings brings us great comfort. Verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Here's where people don't find encouragement in here, when they don't see themselves walking on water, multiplying bread to feed 5,000, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. But Jesus said, I will be greater. He said, I will be bigger. I'll do greater things than him. Is that what Jesus said? Do you see the disciples feeding 5,000 or walking on water? No. What's he referring to here? He's referring to the extent of the miracles and the works that he has done. Jesus had only a small number of followers after his years of ministry, didn't he? But Peter, after one sermon, had 3,000 converts. Greater in extent right? Jesus, in his ministry, never left Palestine. He was always in that area during his ministry. But primarily through Peter and Paul, the gospel spread to all the Gentile known world, right? Everywhere. And now it's, it's global. It's all everywhere. 
How is all of that possible? Because of what he says in verse 12, because I go to my father. You're going to do greater things than these because I'm leaving. This is another allusion to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus leaves, he's able to send his Holy Spirit in his absence. And the Holy Spirit indwells believers and empowers them for ministry. Jesus was in the Father, and the Father was in him, but he was only one person. But now that the Holy Spirit has come because Jesus has left, the Holy Spirit inhabits every person in this room, if you're a believer today, and every Christian in the world. That's greater works than these, the greater in extent, isn't it? All over the world. And comfort comes from trusting in Christ's power to accomplish that through the Spirit, right? I think a lot of times people are discouraged because they just don't see it working. Oh, I've been praying for healing and I've been doing these things. It doesn't work because they think I'm supposed to have that power. I, I, hate, I hate to burst your bubble. <laughs> you don't have that power. Jesus does. His Holy Spirit does and dwells you with that power. Lastly, his promise. Let me just close up with this. Look at verses 13 and 14. His promise should offer us comfort as well. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is a promise to uh, answer prayer, and it's a promise for provision for them. And the key to this is asking in my name. Now, here's the trick on this. This is not a magic formula. This is not a, a guarantee that as long as you ask whatever you want, but you say, in Jesus' name I pray at the end of it, you'll get it, right? Because uh, Jesus' name is not just a little uh, magical uh, name to throw at the end of something to get your wish, like a genie in a bottle. That's not what this is about at all. Here's what it does mean. It means making requests consistent with God's will. That's what asking in Jesus' name means. I ask of things of him that are consistent with his will and the will of his Father. John will later write in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 14, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. We can be confident in prayer. I see a lot of overconfidence a lot of times. Uh, there are those places that say, no, you demand it, right? You're a child of the king. You deserve this and that, so demand it. Claim it even. Claim it in Jesus' name because all you have to do is add his name. I claim a Rolls Royce. I don't really like a Rolls Royce. I don't care. But I mean, right? I claim it. I'm a child of the king after all. The king gives good gifts to his children. That's not what he's teaching. What did Jesus teach in his prayer that he exemplified for them? Your kingdom come. Your will be done, right? I think a lot of times we pray, your kingdom come, my will be done. Your kingdom, God, yeah, glory to you, God, but I really would like this to happen. <laughs> That's my will being done. It's not praying according to his will. I think it also means acknowledging your utter dependence on him to supply every need and not rely on your own resources. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I think it means coming to him and saying, I really have, I have nothing, <laughs> I need you to supply everything I need. I have a tendency to rely on my own resources. God, I need you to give me everything I need. It also means one more thing, I think, expressing a desire that God would be glorified how he answers it. And sometimes we're disappointed how he answers it, but I think we should want his glory. That's what Jesus promises here, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, right? That's the goal here. I just want the glory of the Father, whatever will bring you glory. And when we pray in this way, relying completely on him and desiring only his glory, we find great comfort. Imagine that. The world offers plenty of false hopes, temporary comfort. You can run to medication. You can run, run to alcohol, drugs, Ben and Jerry's, <laughs> daytime TV, television, right? self-help books, psychiatrists, you name it. You can run to all kinds of places that will offer you temporary uh, comfort, but they won't last, they won't offer you permanent comfort. If you rest in those things, you're doing nothing more than trusting in broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what Jeremiah called them, broken cisterns. In John 7, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. 
Remember that? He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you remember when he said all that? Do you remember what John's statement was following that? What, what John told us about it? He said, John, John said that um, he spoke that concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given yet. Much of the comfort we talked about today is really only accessible to us if we have the fountain of living waters in us. That's why you saw that theme of the Spirit throughout it. If you don't have that, um, there's not much comfort that can be offered. You can have temporary comfort, but true lasting comfort only comes through the knowledge of Him and His presence, and that ultimately begins with the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, making us aware of the presence of Christ in us, which brings us comfort. We need his illumination. Reliance on anything else is to rely on broken cisterns. They, they, hold, they hold nothing. Next week, we'll learn more about the Holy Spirit. We'll get deeper uh, into that. But for today, let not your heart be troubled. You have a go-to manual on where to find comfort. We just gave you six things, and that was just in the four, first 14 verses. Is God the God of all comfort? Yes, he is. He is, and you can trust in him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. It is, it is a comfort to know you. You are the God of all comfort. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit that we can know that you are with us, that we are not alone in this world. You did not leave us orphans, as you'll talk about next week. We're not without your presence. You prepared your disciples well, and I'm fearful so many disciples today are not prepared, not aware of these truths, don't rely on them, don't recognize your works and don't listen to your words. Or would you help us to be true disciples that follow through uh, with, Lord, these, these simple truths, just applying those to our hearts, that we would recognize that your presence is with us, that you have gone to prepare an amazing place for us. And not only that, you'll come back and take us to be with you. It's incredible, Lord, that you are the way. We know you the only way to God. And because of your words, I can continue to be encouraged and comforted in you. There is power in me because the Holy Spirit indwells me. Incredible. And you promise to hear our prayers and to answer us. You are a good God. You're truly the God of all comfort. And may we run to you, not to what the world offers for comfort. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.